0: That's Science vs. New season out on Spotify soon.
2: Something to note about secret societies. All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. For every kernel of truth, there's a swath of misinformation, strategically crafted by each group to protect their true goals and practices.
1: Due to the graphic nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. We advise caution for children under 13. On a warm June night in the mid-1750s, a line of strange figures marched through the woods outside of London. They carried flickering candles to light their way. They wore white robes, like those of a priest, but these men had no reverence for God.
2: The 12 faux abbots gathered at the mouth of a cave before striding into the secret underground chambers, two by two. As they descended, they chanted in Latin, penitento non penitenti, which translates to a penis tense rather than penitence.
1: The abbots continued to march until they reached an underground chapel, There, a line of nuns awaited.
2: But just as these men were no ordinary abbots, the women were no ordinary nuns. They unbuttoned their habits, lifted their skirts, and stripped naked.
1: Servers poured from the hallways and rectories, bearing food like the breast of Venus, a pair of roasted birds with red cherry nipples on top, and devil's loins roast beef sliced to resemble a butt. And of course, there was port, and beer, and cocktails with names like Strip Me Naked and Gin and Fanny. As the drinks were passed out, the monks shed their clothes so they could carouse with their female guests.
2: It was just another summer night, and just another Hellfire Club party.
1: Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson.
2: And I'm Greg Polson.
1: And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them.
2: This is our second episode on the Hellfire Club, a clandestine organization associated with demonic worship and ritual human sacrifice. But it's more likely that the rumors about the group and its intentionally provocative name were all trollish efforts to mock Christian traditions.
1: Last week, we traced several incarnations of the Hellfire Club, as three men founded three unique branches that shaped the group's ethos and reputation. The last and most influential founder, Francis Dashwood, built the famous London Hellfire Club headquarters in an underground cavern beneath the abandoned Medminham Abbey. More importantly, He emphasized and originated many of the satanic rumors around the society. He loved to troll the religious establishment and saw the so-called devils as a means of doing that. This
2: week we'll look at how one misguided prank at a hellfire party changed the course of England's history. We'll also examine how the club's influence persists today, even though the original organization is long gone. We'll also examine how the club's influence persists today.
1: In the 1750s, the London branch of the Hellfire Club was at its height. Its founder, Francis Dashwood, used the group to demonstrate his disdain for the major power structures of his day, namely the church.
2: He built a secret underground series of tunnels beneath an abandoned abbey called Medminim. He filled the caverns with indecent artwork meant to disrespect Christian beliefs. He threw wild parties where he could partake of as much booze and sex as he wanted.
1: They only met in the summer, taking a hiatus when the unheated caves were too frigid for frivolity. But when the Hellfire Club was in session, they gathered for bacchanalia every Wednesday and Saturday, plus occasional additional outings.
2: Their meetings were little more than parties. The scarce surviving records suggest that they may have had agendas, calls to order, and other processes implying some form of organization. But there's no hard data about what was discussed or accomplished behind closed doors.
1: There is, however, ample evidence of heavy drinking and anonymous sex. Although women weren't permitted to join the Hellfire Club as members, there were always female guests at their celebrations. These women were often sex workers, members' mistresses or courtesans, and even, allegedly, some high-born ladies, including Dashwood's half-sister.
2: This fit with Dashwood's tendency to troll the aristocracy of the time. His patriarchal society placed immense value on a noblewoman's virginity and sexual purity. So inviting those high-born ladies to orgies would have proven even more scandalous than purchasing the services of sex workers and concubines.
1: Every activity was carefully crafted to give the Hellfire Club a bad reputation, one almost as bad as Dashwood's. At first, he might have liked the scandal that he was able to cultivate, but by 1751, 43-year-old Francis Dashwood seemingly wanted to rehabilitate his image a bit.
2: As we discussed last week, Dashwood had a complicated relationship with organized religion. He scorned traditional hierarchies and refused to accept that ministers or priests had any authority over his own life and moral code. Many Hellfire Club traditions were little more than ways for Dashwood to thumb his nose at propriety.
1: But personally, he seemed to believe in God and wanted to serve and worship him. So roughly half a decade after Dashwood established the Medmenham chapter, he decided to give back to the church.
2: West Wickham's Church of St. Lawrence was in a state of disrepair, with a tower that had practically crumbled away. Dashwood personally funded a restoration with a new golden cap.
1: Today, historians find the project somewhat baffling. The donation to the church was fundamentally at odds with all of Dashwood's stated values. Maybe he was engaging in some savvy PR, trying to rehabilitate his public persona. Or maybe he was trying to barter with God. I'll build you a church if you look the other way while I'm hosting my demonic orgies.
2: Dashwood's parties hadn't calmed down. In fact, the longer the Hellfire Club persisted, the wilder its gatherings got. Unlike other secret societies, Dashwood's Hellfire Club didn't seem to have grand global ambitions or political aspirations. It was mostly an organization where wealthy and powerful men could drink and have orgies in private, away from judgmental eyes and whispered rumors that could destroy an aristocrat's name in the 18th century.
1: Their drinking, gambling, and sex was shocking at the time, although it may seem quaint to modern listeners. Equally quaint were the devil's pranks they played on one another, until one seemingly innocent, simple, practical joke led to the decline of the Hellfire Club and the destabilization of the British Parliament.
2: Most rumors agree that the prankster was John Wilkes, a member of the House of Commons. He was closely tied to the hellfire club's leadership and had even once been considered as an initiate to the inner circle ultimately that position was instead awarded to his rival john montague the fourth earl of sandwich
1: as for the earl he wasn't very highly respected by other devils in fact he was viewed as something of a poser he liked to act like he was the most blasphemous debaucherous scandalous member of all but according to rumors, he was overcompensating for his personal superstitious religious leanings.
2: To expose Montague's alleged hypocrisy, Wilkes encouraged the Earl to enter a locked jail cell, hidden deep in the maze-like tunnels of the Medmenham Estates. Uncertain of what he'd find, Montague accepted the dare.
1: With the other devils watching and following, Montague strode down a dank path, Thanks to the frequent underground parties, Montague had some familiarity with Medmenham's hellfire caves, but even a regular attendee could easily get lost in the winding, branching tunnels. Finally, he reached the barred chamber, which contained a weathered chest.
2: The Earl approached it, uncertain what treasures it might contain. He reached for the clasp, but before he could unlock it, the lid flew open on its own. Something dark, mysterious, and inhuman leapt at him with a blood-curdling shriek.
1: The creature landed on Montague's back, scratching his shirt and robes with clawed fingers. Fearing for his life, Montague grabbed the beast and flung it off himself. The attacker, whatever it was, scrambled across the floor, barely pausing to regain its balance there was something both beastly and oddly human in the way it moved.
2: Montague could only interpret the creature's appearance in one way. It was Satan himself, who had come to the Hellfire Club's headquarters to drag him personally to Hell. He ran out of the room shouting, Spare me, gracious devil! Spare a wretch who was never sincerely your servant! I have sinned only from the vanity of being in fashion. Never have I been able to commit the thousandth part of the vices which I have boasted of.
1: Meanwhile, the other Hellfire members had a good, hard laugh at his expense. A couple of men captured the strange creature and determined what it really was, a baboon dressed up in a miniature devil costume.
2: Once the Earl eventually calmed down and realized the nature of the prank, he was deeply embarrassed.
1: And that embarrassment curdled into rage against the man who'd humiliated him, John Wilkes. From that day forward, Montague and Wilkes were sworn enemies.
2: Historian Evelyn Lord noted in her book, The Hellfire Clubs, that this incident with the baboon probably never happened. There are no contemporary records of the primate prank, and the logistics of getting a baboon into a devil costume and then prodding him to leap at the earl at the precisely right moment would be nearly impossible to coordinate.
1: But Lord accepts that around the date of this alleged practical joke, Montague and Wilkes did have some kind of falling out, but the reasons for such have been lost to history. Regardless of its cause, the feud was all too real.
2: And the Earl was resolved to get his revenge on Wilkes by any means he could, even if he had to destabilize the British government to do it.
1: Up next, the Hellfire Club suffers from the fallout of the Montague-Wilkes
0: feud. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be
1: Parliamentarian John Wilkes supposedly pranked his peer, John Montague, Earl of Sandwich, with a baboon locked in a chest. The seemingly harmless practical joke sparked a feud that shaped the history of the Western world.
2: For example, Wilkes was adamantly in favor of the Seven Years' War, frequently penning patriotic pamphlets, urging his fellow members of Parliament to keep up the fight. But in 1763, peace talks were initiated under the guidance of the Earl of Butte, a colleague of Montague's.
1: Of course, it's possible that Montague or the Earl of Butte sincerely desired armistice. But once Montague started repeatedly addressing Parliament, demanding Wilkes' resignation, it became clear this was more fallout from the feud. Montague took every opportunity to undermine his nemesis.
2: Then, later that year, Wilkes was arrested for illegally publishing a series of pornographic pamphlets, and he knew just who tipped off the authorities. Wilkes had only printed 12 copies, presumably to be shared among the 12 members of the Hellfire Club's inner circle, and there was only one devil he was currently at war with.
1: The piece Wilkes was disseminating was called An Essay on Woman, and it was a sexual parody of Alexander Pope's popular An Essay on Man. The satire salaciously described numerous sex acts, often performed by public figures.
2: An Essay on Woman included such scandalous couplets as, the latent traits the pleasing depths explore, and my prick chapped where thousands were before.
1: As soon as London police officers confiscated the material, they dubbed it indecent. Even worse, certain allusions to Bishop Warburton of Gloucester and his unmarried lover, as well as allegedly blasphemous discussions of Jesus Christ, led Parliament to charge Wilkes with libel.
2: But rather than prepare for his impending trial, Wilkes lashed out at the man he blamed for all his troubles, Jean Montague. Wilkes knew he was poised to lose his parliamentary seat, but if he was going down, he'd take Montague and the entire Hellfire Club down with him.
1: In 1763, 38-year-old John Wilkes published a series of exposés detailing Medmenham's pornographic decorations, profane rituals, and sexual improprieties. In fact, much of what we now believe took place at the Hellfire Club stems from Wilkes' writings.
2: Which raises the question, was the Hellfire Club really as blasphemous and hedonistic as Wilkes implied? Or was he exaggerating in an effort ticket back at Montague and his colleagues? Given the lack of objective accounts of the organization, we can't answer with any certainty.
1: What we can say is that Wilkes' publications occurred right before the Hellfire Club's decline. Maybe the public exposure took all the fun out of the devil's cloak and dagger practices, or maybe the members were shamed into quitting. Whatever the reason, their meetings became infrequent.
2: But the group didn't die out immediately. In fact, while Wilkes's criticisms may have driven some members away, they also served as a sort of advertisement for new recruits. Shortly after his exposés were published, an illustrious figure began to frequent the halls of Medmenham.
1: Beginning in 1764, American founding father Benjamin Franklin lived in Europe He served there for nine years as an international ambassador for the U.S.'s Pennsylvania Assembly.
2: Today, Franklin might be best known for his early studies of electricity or as one of the authors of the Declaration of Independence. But in his time, he was just as infamous for his vices. Franklin often drank to excess, kept multiple mistresses, and regularly hired sex workers
1: which meant he got along great with Francis Dashwood. They'd probably first become close friends years earlier, but by the 1760s, Franklin lived in Dashwood's guest house at his West Wickham estates and frequently attended the Hellfire Club's meetings. There's no confirmation one way or the other if he ever became an actual member. Whether or not Franklin was a devil, he was certainly a member of his fair share of other secret societies. He's known to have belonged to a group called the Freemasons.
2: And his alleged memberships might have led him to some dangerous and arcane behaviors. Roughly three decades ago, 10 human corpses were uncovered at the West Wickham House, where Franklin stayed. Historians haven't been able to explain why the founding father had so many bodies buried in his own backyard.
1: Given Franklin's secret society connections, some have speculated that he participated in ritualistic murder.
2: As we mentioned last week, a devil known only by the pseudonym Morlock wrote a letter describing hellfire activities in the organization's early years. He detailed one custom called the Sacrifice of Maidens. Many historians suggest that Morlock's account was misleading, and the sacrifice actually consisted of taking a woman's virginity That said, perhaps the corpses at Franklin's home suggest Morlock was
1: speaking literally. Less dramatic theories suggest that the remains belonged to his roommate, a medical student named William Hewson, who'd resorted to grave robbing to learn anatomy. We can't say for sure who these corpses belonged to or whether Franklin was involved with their deaths or disposal.
2: It's also difficult to say with any certainty whether he took the Hellfire Club's ideology back with him to the United States of America. At the time, clandestine organizations were as plentiful as frat houses might be today. There were dozens, if not hundreds, in every major city. Historian Peter Clark observed that in the 1700s, one in every five adult Bostonian men belonged to at least one secret society.
1: So it wouldn't be that outlandish to suggest that Franklin might have returned to the States to plant his own American Hellfire Club. But there's no evidence, nor are there any contemporary accounts, to suggest that actually happened.
2: We do know, however, that Franklin's Hellfire connections back in London helped spark the American Revolution. One of the most popular writers in the colonies, and England alike, was John Wilkes who, since losing his libel trial, had been composing pamphlet after pamphlet criticizing the monarchy and calling for democratic liberty. He was outspokenly against inherited titles, like, say, the one given to his rival, the Earl of Sandwich.
1: His trials made Wilkes popular with the people, who saw him as a martyr since his arrest. He was so beloved, in fact, he won three back-to-back popular elections for his own vacant House of Commons seat. But each victory was subsequently overturned due to his status as a persona non grata.
2: This was a grave misstep. Wilkes supporters saw firsthand how their own Democratic votes were discounted while Parliament chose who could join their ranks. The governmental corruption couldn't be more obvious and Wilkes used the injustice to vitalize his base.
1: His ongoing conflicts with Parliament strengthened his reputation as a maverick. 43-year-old Wilkes was even arrested in 1768 for his rabble-rousing ways. He sat in prison for two weeks while crowds rallied outside his cell, chanting, Wilkes and Liberty, and damn the king, damn the government, damn the justices.
2: The people had had enough of governmental oppression, and they wouldn't rest until Wilkes was free. A few of his supporters even formed the Bill of Rights Society, a group that advocated for Wilkes' release and hoped to reform
1: Parliament in the process. The Bill of Rights Society raised money to pay off Wilkes' legal fees and also voted to provide financial or legal assistance to political prisoners. This latter initiative didn't pass, and the organization fractured soon afterward.
2: But they achieved something bigger than they'd ever anticipated. American John Adams was inspired by the society's work and that of John Wilkes. So were the original Sons of Liberty, the pro-democracy secret society, responsible for the Boston Tea Party.
1: In the American colonies, Wilkes became a symbol of democratic justice, an important philosopher stifled by monarchical tyranny. Historian Pauline Mayer explained, In the years between 1768 and 1770, no English political figure evoked more enthusiasm in America than the radical John Wilkes.
2: While he rotted away in prison... John Hancock, Samuel Adams, and John Adams signed a petition for his release. Protest movements sprang up in Massachusetts, Maryland, and Virginia, as ordinary citizens campaigned for Wilkes' freedom.
1: And these activist groups soon grew to be something more, While men and women gathered to discuss the injustice of Wilkes' imprisonment, they began to focus on other unfair policies, restrictions on the rights to gather or criticize the government, surcharges on stamps and tea, taxation without representation. The seeds of the American Revolution were beginning to sprout. Strangely,
2: through all of this, Benjamin Franklin had little affection for Wilkes. But even in the midst of their personal animosity, Franklin was able to recognize the value of Wilkes's revolutionary fervor. They were allies, although they were never friends.
1: Thanks to popular support on both sides of the pond, Wilkes was eventually released from prison in 1770. Later that decade, he regained his former parliamentary seat where he advocated for an unpopular position. Liberty for the American Colonies.
2: The upstarts, largely inspired by Wilkes's writing, declared liberty from British rule on July 4, 1776. While the rest of Parliament repeatedly approved military intervention leading to all-out war, Wilkes urged the English government to concede to colonial demands. In late 1777, Wilkes even championed a bill to limit the British government's taxation authority in colonial America, It received only 10
1: votes. By 1778, Wilkes knew what the rest of Parliament refused to recognize, that the American colonies would never accept the crown's rule. During a speech on November 26th, he said... A series of four years of disgraces and defeats are surely sufficient to convince us of the absolute impossibility of conquering America by force, and I fear the gentle means of persuasion have equally failed.
2: Even then, his warnings fell on deaf ears. For four more years, British troops battled with American rebels until finally the English were defeated. Just as Wilkes had warned, they could never compel the colonies to reject the principles of democracy or self-governance.
1: Principles they'd studied in Wilkes' own writings. The writings Wilkes had composed while in prison on charges of libel. Charges orchestrated as part of a feud with Earl John Montague of Sandwich. And it all
2: supposedly stemmed from a prank at the Hellfire Club.
1: After American independence, Wilkes continued to quietly serve in Parliament, but his country was utterly transformed. British hegemony had been threatened, and the carefree days of aristocratic revelry were over. Even the apolitical Medmenham Hellfire Club seemingly disbanded before or during the revolution. It seemed nobody wanted to mindlessly carouse anymore.
2: In fact, there's very little evidence that any chapters of the Hellfire Club still existed by the latter half of the 18th century.
1: But much like its namesake would imply, the Hellfire Club wasn't easy to put out. Nor did it take long for another influential organization to rise up out of their ashes.
2: Next, we'll examine the new groups that followed in the Hellfire Club's wake.
1: Now, back to the story.
2: After roughly 40 years of cultural influence, the Hellfire Club was torn asunder by a petty feud between John Montague, the Earl of Sandwich, and a member of Parliament, John Wilkes, in 1763.
1: The men's conflict sent ripples through British high society. Wilkes was arrested and ejected from Parliament. He lashed out in response, publishing a series of incendiary and revolutionary pamphlets. His writings in turn influenced America's founding fathers, who subsequently won a war for independence against the British. But the bad publicity around Wilkes and Montague's feud eventually led the Hellfire Club to die out. Like much else about the Hellfire Club, there's scant information to suggest how or why the group ended. We can't even say for sure if the London chapter was formally disbanded or if the members simply drifted away, pursuing other interests.
2: The lack of any documentation is particularly frustrating, given that poet Paul Whitehead had been keeping formal records of every meeting since the club's inception. But in the mid-1770s, he fell deathly ill— Fearing that his papers would fall into the wrong hands, and seeing the fallout that John Wilkes had faced over his Hellfire writings, Whitehead burned everything. Three days later, he died.
1: Thanks to this final act of destruction, today there are almost no surviving records of what went on at Hellfire Club meetings. All we have to go by are rumors and accounts from outsiders.
2: Even the few scraps of first-hand information we do have, like Wilkes's publications, or a letter written by an unidentified devil using the pseudonym Morlock, are very questionable. The Hellfire Club members love to exaggerate their own rebellious activities in order to shock the public.
1: Perhaps motivated by similar desires to keep the group's behavior a secret, Dashwood didn't seem to mind the loss of documentation, In fact, after Whitehead's death, Dashwood had him interred at the mausoleum at his estate.
2: At Medmenham, he had a statue of Whitehead erected near the entrance of the underground tunnels to the Hellfire Club headquarters. Any visitor daring to enter these caverns would be greeted by the sight of a stone-pale, utterly still dead man.
1: And yes, there were visitors. If Dashwood had hoped that tales of ritual human sacrifice and satanic black masses would keep the public away, then his plans backfired spectacularly. By 1781, mystics, thrill-seekers, and the merely curious descended on Medmenham, hoping to catch a glimpse of the notorious Hellfire Club and their secret ceremonies.
2: A tourist industry sprang up as people from the surrounding villages led paying customers on guided walks across the estates.
1: Perhaps fearing sticky-fingered sightseers, Dashwood or the other former devils removed all of their sacred objects, pornographic materials, and artworks from the caves under Medmenum.
2: Francis Dashwood survived for about a decade longer than his organization, but its final years were haunted by the group's practices, literally.
1: In the 1770s, rumors began to swirl that former devil and record keeper Paul Whitehead's ghost had been spotted flitting through trees or peeking out the windows of Dashwood's home. Members of Dashwood's own household claimed they'd spotted the specter at the West Wickham Estates in November of 1781.
2: Perhaps he was there to call his 73-year-old friend Francis Dashwood home. Dashwood was seriously ill when the ghost was sighted, and he passed away on December 11th.
1: But even Dashwood's death couldn't keep the Hellfire Club down for long. Later that very year, it was symbolically reborn as the Phoenix Society.
2: The dining club was founded by Dashwood's nephew, Joseph Alderson. The Phoenix Society was considerably more reserved than the Hellfire Club. They gathered regularly for dinner, but didn't engage in orgies or demonic rituals. Nevertheless, its charter specified that it had been founded to honor Dashwood.
1: Even though the Phoenix Society's meetings were designed to be more demure, at least one death was recorded at one of their gatherings, most likely of alcohol poisoning.
2: The Phoenix Society still exists today in the form of the Phoenix Common Room, a dining club operating out of Brasenose College. But it isn't the only extent Secret Society to trace its lineage to the defunct London Hellfire Club. Other sister branches sprung up throughout the late 18th and early 19th centuries.
1: Information about these other clubs is generally even sparser and more intriguing than the stories about its predecessor. But a few shocking and salacious rumors suggest that the Hellfire Club's most outrageous behaviors were continued by its offshoots.
2: Legends imply that an Irish Protestant named Thomas Buck Whaley started a new Hellfire Club near Montpelier Hill, close to the site of the very first Dublin chapter. Whaley's organization is alleged to have practiced cannibalism and burned down Catholic cathedrals just for the fun of it.
1: Another supposed revival club was founded by the Romantic poet Lord Byron. Much like the devils who came before him, Byron loved to shock and scandalize his readers. He believed in God but rejected church authority and, according to rumors, dabbled in secret societies and in satanic worship.
2: The London Hellfire Club was probably defunct by the time Byron reached young adulthood in the early 1800s. It's unlikely there were any remaining chapters. But according to historian Jeffrey Ash, Byron may have tried and failed to
1: launch his own branch. Given the scarcity of information about any offshoots beyond the London chapter, it's difficult to say with certainty how many there were, how long they functioned, when they disbanded, or even if they ever existed. We can surmise that the lack of records after the 1700s mean the Hellfire Club is no longer functional today. But we can't be 100% certain.
2: There's good cause to believe this organization simply died out. By the start of the 19th century, the cultural factors that had led secret societies to proliferate now tamp them down.
1: The American and French revolutions established democracies that guaranteed freedoms of speech and religion. England and Germany kept their monarchies, but installed parliaments elected by the people. Change swept across Europe as ordinary citizens gained political power for themselves. Social reformers no longer had to meet in secret to discuss their ideals.
2: But as we discussed last week, 18th century secret societies weren't solely havens for the intellectual elite. Many aristocrats joined these organizations for the social standing they offered. But the Industrial Revolution led to new social orders with new signifiers of wealth and power. Clandestine meetings in clubhouses or secret tunnels were no longer trendy. They were passé.
1: But that doesn't mean that every Enlightenment-era secret society died out. After all, the Freemasons still operate today, albeit in a very different context than that in which they were formed. And while the Hellfire Club seemingly shut its doors forever, its principles lived on. That's in part thanks to modern philosophers like Alistair Crowley.
2: Crowley was born in 1875 and spent his adult years writing about witchcraft and sexual hedonism. Like the devils who came before him, he delighted in scandalizing the public with his rejection of religion and embrace of the occult. He even nicknamed himself the Beast and the Wickedest Man in the World.
1: In the early 1900s, Crowley dabbled in several secret societies, including the Freemasons and Golden Dawn. He, like Francis Dashwood, was outspoken in his criticism of conservative Christian values.
2: Crowley was born a century too late to join the Hellfire Club, but his fascination with occult knowledge and secret societies allowed him to uncover their philosophies and resurrect their belief systems.
1: He frequently, publicly repeated his personal motto, do as thou wilt. The English translation of the Latin commandment, Dashwood hung over the entrance to the Medmenham Caverns. It's unclear whether Crowley specifically discovered the motto during his study of Dashwood's society, or if he and the devils were inspired by the same earlier philosopher.
2: He was also friends with Gerald Gardner, who cults listeners will remember as the man who founded modern Wicca. It's widely believed that Crowley heavily influenced Gardner's beliefs and might even have penned an early draft of the charter for Gardner's coven. His writings also influenced later religious thinkers, like L. Ron Hubbard, founder of Scientology.
1: As well as Anton LaVey, who established the Church of Satan on April 30th, 1966, when he was 36.
2: Like early devils Philip, Duke of Wharton, Richard Parsons, Earl of Ross, and Francis Dashwood, LaVey didn't really believe in Lucifer. Instead, he used the figure of the devil as a shocking symbol for his opposition to church authority.
1: LaVey published The Satanic Bible in 1969, in which he outlined an ethical humanist philosophy by which a person could do good work without deferring to divine might or worldly powers. The book was only satanic insofar as it taught its readers to reject parochial social values.
2: LaVey's advocacy bore other similarities to the old hellfire clubs. Like Dashwood, he knew that he could draw attention by shocking the world so, he made several satanic claims that have since been disproven, like that he played the devil in Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby.
1: Today, groups like the Church of Satan or Wiccan covens can blur the line between religion and protest movement. Shock tactics are a valid means to make a political point, as well as a way for group members to craft their own countercultural identities. And all of this is due to the groundwork laid by the devils and other secret societies of the era.
2: Ultimately, the 21st century world is fundamentally different from the era of enlightenment. Monarchies are no longer the dominant political system in Europe. The Catholic Church is no longer the authority on art and scientific breakthroughs.
1: But many of the same battles the devils fought rage on. Although nations like the United States have a legal separation of church and state, many secular Americans fear that Christian leaders have undue influence over the government.
2: This is best encapsulated in ongoing religiously motivated legislation that attempts to inhibit LGBTQIA rights or a 2015 case in which an Oklahoma courthouse displayed a replica of the Ten Commandments until the Supreme Court required them to remove it.
1: Protest groups have repeatedly used the trappings of Satanism to push back against these religious incursions or to test the limits of the First Amendment, which protects the free practice of all religions.
2: So long as individuals face religious discrimination, they'll find ways to pursue their work in secret. So long as Christian hegemony silences dissent, secular or progressive activists will find ways to push back.
1: And so long as young trolls know they can get a reaction out of their anti-religious demonstrations, the hellfires will burn on.
2: Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode.
1: For more information on the Hellfire Club, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Hellfire Clubs by Evelyn Lord extremely helpful to our research.
2: You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify.
1: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
2: To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search
1: bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time.
2: Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Juan Borda. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.